from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. This interview is being released on Memorial Day in honor of all servicemen and women who gave their lives in defense of their country. I am very pleased to welcome my special guest, writer Garth Ennis. Garth's body of work includes Judge Dredd stories for 2000 AD, The Punisher, and Hitman, His comic book series, Preacher and the Boys, were both adapted for television. He has been an avid reader of military comics and history since a young age. He has written several war-based comics, including Battlefields, Johnny Red, War Stories, and Dreaming Eagles. His latest collection now available is The Tankies. The book is being published through Dead Reckoning, which is an imprint of the Naval Institute Press. The Tankies is the story of British armored forces that fought during World War II and the Korean War. The connection among the three stories contained within this graphic novel is the British tank crews led by Corporal Stiles. Many of the sequences in this book were taken from actual historical events. I asked Garth why both the British and American tanks were at a disadvantage against the German King Tiger tanks. Why were tank crews prohibited from clearing out tanks that fell in battle? I discussed with Garth his favorite battle comics he grew up reading and as a professional getting the chance to work with one of his favorite artists, Carlos Escarrera the co-creator of Judge Dredd and Strontium Dog. Carlos Escarrera died in 2018. Garth shares his memories of Carlos and the special contribution his art style made to the tankies. I conclude my interview asking Garth my final nine questions, which include that missed opportunity and the time he took a risk. So please join me in welcoming my special guest, Eisner award-winning writer Garth Ennis, as we discuss the tankies. Here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here. I've had two memorable experiences with your war books. The first one was at the New Jersey Comic Con Expo in Edison, New Jersey. This was, I believe, back in 2015. I was writing at the time for Word of the Nerd, and you were kind enough to grant me an interview. You were promoting at the time Dreaming Eagles, the World War II story. Right. Yes, yes. So that's where I first met you. You signed a copy of uh, Battlefields for me. Which, uh, Volume 1, which actually ties into the tankies we're going to speak about. Right. And the other book, you wrote one about British tanks. It was uh, World of Tanks. Yes, right. And also with the artist on the tankies, Carlos Escarrera. I can tell you the exact date that book came out. It was August 31st, 2016, Mm -hmm. a Wednesday. The reason why I remember is I have a tradition of buying for my children from the comics that come out that week. That was one of the books I picked up for my son. So let's turn to the tankies. The tankies is a story about British armored forces in World War II. Uh, battles in Normandy and Germany, and also later in the Korean War. The connection among these is the tank crew and its commander, Corporal Stiles. Many of the sequences in the book were taken from actual historical events. They're based on that. Why did you choose these three particular battles for the tankies? The first one, the Normandy battles, that was a topic that I've been fascinated with for a long time. It's an incredibly intense period of um, armored warfare in the close-in, claustrophobic Normandy countryside where the uh, tank units who have been trained for, I suppose, maneuver warfare find themselves caught in little hedgerows and fields and villages. Excellent terrain for the German defenders, not so good for the British and American attackers. 
and uh, it rapidly becomes a bloodbath. Um, I believe the casualty rate during the battle exceeded that of the uh, the First World War, which was a notoriously bloody business. Um, and I've always been interested in it just because the two armies, the gigantic Allied invading army and defending army, smash into each other with quite catastrophic results. Anyone who saw Saving Private Ryan knows that the D-Day invasion was certainly hard fought. The Allies successfully invested ashore, um, moving equipment into the beachhead, and the invasion of Europe essentially a success. What they don't understand is that it took another six or seven weeks of very, very hard fighting for the uh, British and American and Canadian forces to bash their way through the Germans. So that's something I always wanted to write about. With that one, with the first tanky story, I tried to catch something of the flavor of a battle moving through various scenes and characters, linking them together with Styles and his crew, but examining also the lot of the infantry and of the German defenders. The second story was simpler. Uh, it's called The Firefly and His Majesty. And it's a much simpler story. It's a duel between two tank crews in their tank, something that very rarely happened in World War II. Um, because, of course, most tanks will go into action accompanied by infantry, uh, other tanks supported by airstrikes and artillery. But I thought that this story suited Styles' mindset at the time when he'd become quite bloody-minded about taking on the more dangerous German tanks. Uh, it had become very personal for him, so a duel seemed like the way to go. And then the third one, set in the Korean War, that was an instance where it was directly inspired by reading a particular account of the battles on the Imjin River in the spring of 1951, uh, when a number of British infantry units were caught by vastly superior Chinese units and surrounded, and British tanks had to fight their way through the Chinese to rescue the British units stuck on the hill. So it was three different aspects of armoured warfare, really. Um, I wanted to try and cover as much of the experience of the British tank crews as possible. And that's why the three turned out the way they did. One thing that struck me is, especially in the first two stories, it seems like the British tanks were always at a disadvantage against the Panzer and Tiger tanks, especially the Tiger tank with its four-inch thick steel is it true that the British, even the Americans with their Sherman tanks, feared confronting a King Tiger tank? Certainly those German tanks had a pretty fearsome reputation, and they were well-earned. or That was well-earned, I should say. Um, they were bigger, badder. They had more dangerous guns. Their guns could destroy any Allied tank. Their armor could keep out most Allied tank shells. They were, however ultimately a bad investment because while the Americans in particular could knock out thousands of Sherman tanks, Germany found it hard, especially with the war turning against uh, the Germans the way it did. They found it particularly hard to keep up industrial output. And so there were never that many of these Tigers and Panthers, the ones that did make it to the battlefield, frequently broke down. They were hard to move around. The Tiger had trouble crossing some bridges because it was so heavy. I think it weighed 56 tons. The Sherman was only 32 or something like that. The Sherman was also incredibly reliable, almost never went wrong. And uh, most Allied commanders would have preferred volume rather than trying to fight their battles with a small number of, on the surface, more impressive tanks. 
But there's no question that an Allied tanker in his Sherman or Churchill or Cromwell who came face to face with a German Tiger or Panther was almost certainly in for a bad day. It's just that it didn't happen anywhere near as often as people sometimes think. There was a term used in the book. In fact, one of the chapters was named Sugar, Sugar, and I couldn't find anything more about that phrase used in this context in terms of the SS. Please explain what that term Sugar, Sugar meant. It simply um, refers to the SS, S for sugar, in the way A for Alpha, B for Baker, D for Delta or Dog. These are just the terms that were used at the time. So sugar, sugar referred to the SS. I think it's a British term, actually. I'm not sure it was really widely used among uh, uh, U.S. forces. It also gives you a nice title for a story. The tankies were told never to clear the tanks after a battle because of what lied within the carnage after the battle. Right. They were in constant danger when they were fighting. They were really brave going into those vehicles, being basically in like a metal coffin in a sense, should something go horribly wrong. That's very true. On the one hand, they were protected from small arms fire, from shrapnel, from smaller anti-tank shells. But there's no question that um, if they were hit by a high-velocity shell, say from a Tiger or a Panther or a German anti-tank, their tank that had previously kept them safe and mobile could suddenly become a horrifyingly dangerous place to be. If the ammunition or fuel cooked off, it became a fire trap. If they couldn't get out in time, if the hatches were jammed by the velocity of the impact, if perhaps the driver's hatch was jammed because their own tank's gun had come to rest just above it, well, then they were trapped inside a metal box, which, as one observer said, rapidly took on the properties of a domestic incinerator. Now, I think bone is supposed to burn at something like 1,500 degrees. The temperature inside a burning tank could quite easily reach twice that. So you can imagine what it would be like in the horrifying 10 to 20 seconds it took you to die in those circumstances. And many people did hear the screams of the men who were trapped in the tanks and swore they would never get into a tank again. And that's why, as you say, tank crews were discouraged from cleaning out the remains of their comrades from the tanks that had been hit because of the sight that met their eyes when they managed to get the hatches open was, uh, well, something to behold. Now, when we get to the chapter on the Korean War, there were really no tanks for the British to fight. The Americans were facing the communist tanks, but they were right. the British were supporting the army, basically. But they had to deal with the enemy in a different way, that they were just being overwhelmed by their superior number of forces, their bodies. They were just being swarmed. Tell me about some of the tactics that they were using to attack the tanks. Yes, you're quite right. In the Korean War, it just so happened that in the sectors the British were deployed in, there were no enemy tanks. They were all met by the Americans because the tanks the North Koreans were using were World War II vintage, they didn't give the American armored units much in the way of a problem. The British found themselves up against uh, primarily enemy infantry. And in the Imjin battles, that meant quite literally thousands upon thousands of Chinese soldiers who had been taught what I think at the time were communist tactics, uh, human wave assaults, simply overwhelming the enemy by sheer number. To put it in suitably brutal terms, that means that if you have a machine gun with 200 rounds in the belt 
and there are 201 Chinese soldiers, they're going to win. Now, what that meant for the British tank units, the uh, Centurion tank crews who fought their way through the Chinese to reach the cutoff British infantry, was quite frequently their tanks would be swarmed. The Chinese soldiers would simply climb onto their tanks by the dozen and start trying to crowbar open the hatches or perhaps the engine hatches. Uh, a grenade in either would mean a lot of trouble for the occupants. So what they got into the habit of doing uh, was what they called de-lousing. What one tank would stop covered in Chinese soldiers and a second tank would simply machine gun it and keep pouring in machine gun fire until all the Chinese soldiers on the tank were dead. And then that second tank would stop while the first tank repeated the treatment for it. And then they would proceed on their way. So it was a, a horrific means of fighting. But really, they had little choice because after all, as I say, the Chinese soldiers could eventually have gotten into them, into the tanks. And that would have meant doom for the crews. It is actually a horrifying thought to think that the Chinese had been taught to fight like this, that they were essentially told as part of the communist ethos, your own life doesn't matter. The cause, the country is all that matters. Therefore, you must sacrifice yourself in battle with the enemy. And thousands upon thousands of them were more than ready to do it. Ghastly thought, really. Mm. Something else they employed in their tactics against the tanks, I believe, were sticky bombs. And that reminded me... I think there was a scene in Saving Private Ryan where they had to right. create sticky yes. bombs with their socks, right? Something like that. That's similar, isn't it? That's right. There's a guy, I think, lights his sticky bomb too soon when he's attacking the tanks at the end of the movie, and he blows up before he even reaches the enemy tank. He kind of bursts, as I recall. It's one of a number of very effective scenes in that film. Um, the Chinese would have used similar tactics. Also, pole charges, a, a bomb on the end of a pole approaching the tank you could maybe thrust it in between the turret and the body of the tank or under an engine hatch or through the tracks um really there were many many things they could do to disable these british tanks and occasionally they did succeed in all of your war books and this one is certainly no exception it's the characters that i find so compelling and you make use of regional dialect throughout the book corporal styles is made fun of by other soldiers he's ribbed what is it about the culture that made certain groups feel superior to others and like pick on them, even on the battlefield? What's the history behind that? I think it's something to do with the history of the British Army and the British people in general, where you have a great many people crammed into a small island. Mm. Um, the population of the UK is, I think it's about 60 million, which, now that's a lot of people. It's, what, a fifth of the United States? Uh, but on the other hand, that's 60 million people crammed into a space the size of, what, Kansas or somewhere like that, you know, a single state. Now, imagine a fifth of the population of your country crammed into Kansas. And so you have a great many people all shoved together, and that means a great many regional dialects all bumping up against one another. And people do what they naturally do. In that instance, they make fun of each other. So Styles has this broad Geordie accent, which is an accent from the city of Newcastle in the north of England. He finds himself in the third story fighting alongside guys from the southwest. They're farmers' boys from, I suppose, Devon, Dorset, Somerset, around that neck of the woods. And even though they all speak English, the dialect, the accents themselves are very, very different. And of course, people cope with that by, as usual, derision. 
Um, it is, however, mostly good-natured. I mean, you see in the story that Styles and the Gloucester soldiers from the Southwest do ultimately get on. You do employ humor in your stories, and in the tragedy of war was relieved often with pranks, comedy. Mm. It was the soldier's way of coping to kind of put one foot yeah. in front of the other, to move on. And your mm-hmm. book's characters deal with a lot of humor to deal with these horrible tragedies that we see in war. And I guess like comedy and tragedy masks of the ancient Greek plays, there are two extremes of human emotion. The soldiers had to be able to turn one on and off given the situation. Yeah, I mean, there's a long tradition of that. I think if you read personal memoirs, if you read histories of various wars, various battles, you will find a good deal of that. Um, They use humor to overcome their nerves. They use it to overcome the horrible things they've seen, um, the anticipation of what might be happening to them next. It's just a very natural human defense response, I think. A writer I like, a novelist called Derek Robinson, who writes a good deal of extremely good military fiction, wrote, if you take the humor out of life, if you take the humor out of any given situation, you're not making it more true. You're actually making it dishonest. That is simply not how people behave all the time. They do not behave without humor. There is an important difference, and you mentioned this earlier, between the Allies and the German army, and even with the Communist army, and you point this out in the afterword in the book, the Allies were not soldiers pressed to fight to the last man like the Germans were, or like the Communist army was taught, just to throw your bodies at it, you know, you're part of the cause. And what I got from this was, due to the experience of World War One, was one of the reasons why the Allies were a little more adverse to throwing every last thing at the enemy in sacrificing all. And the German army fanaticism following Hitler was one of the reasons they could just keep going at it and just to the last man. There is a German army that at that point does result in a good deal of extremely hard fighting, but also in a lot of cases, fanaticism. That doesn't mean that there are individual American soldiers who aren't capable of acts of extreme bravery. And it's worth noting that it takes at least as much courage for a rookie just out of training to go into combat as it does a veteran. After all, they're facing the same thing, and uh, at least the veteran knows what to expect. Um, But yes, I think the Allied commanders found that there are things you can ask a man from a totalitarian state to do that a man from a democracy just won't. He may not endure as much, I'm speaking here in very broad terms, individual for individual, not about particular soldiers. It's also worth noting that uh, many of the Allied commanders, of course, had served in World War I as young lieutenants and captains, as junior officers, and seen their men horribly wasted their lives wasted by the orders of high command and so when they were the senior officers giving the orders they were averse to using up men's lives in the same way i think there's a cultural thing here and there's a historical thing the germans are fighting all out often in quite fanatical ways in defense the allies on the other hand their commanders are reluctant to risk their lives in large numbers even though that might end the war more quickly and the soldiers themselves, well, their fathers came back from World War I extremely cynical about what it meant to fight for your country, to fight for the British Empire. The promises that those men had been made about coming home to a land fit for heroes simply didn't come true. They came home to mass unemployment uh, and depression. And so you had men who were prepared to fight for their country, prepared to do the job, but 
not necessarily to die in the last ditch the way some of their opponents did. Yeah, and I think, too, that when you look at the, the German army and the communist army, they were geared up for conquest. They kind of had a, quote, professional army. Not that the Allies did not, but as you said, there's a difference in the culture and there's some fanaticism behind the other that just drove them differently than the average person who went into the army. I think so. I think it's also worth noting that the Allied armies, for this reason, were perhaps overall less prone to atrocity, whereas the Germans and the Russians frequently committed atrocities as a matter of course. Not always. There's another aspect of this culture, which is one of armies' behavior depending on the armies they meet. Uh, the Germans treated the Russians as absolutely subhuman, whereas they treated the Americans and the British generally as more honored opponents. Surrenders would be honored. Captured soldiers would mostly be treated decently. Um, on the other hand, at the other extreme, um, you look at the way uh, Japanese soldiers treated the army they fought and the citizens of every country they went into. Uh, you're talking about a record of inhumanity that may not ever have been equaled, at least in the brief period that the uh, the Japanese soldiers were fighting. So again, there is a cultural thing going on here. Um, if you have fanatical soldiers, if you have men raised to a level of brutality and inhumanity, it can be quite difficult sometimes to get them to stop that behavior once the shooting stops. Let's talk about some of the comics that made the greatest impression upon your young mind and led to your interest in military history. Uh, two comics you've mentioned in the past that were particularly important to you were Battle Picture Weekly and Commando. Right. Do you still have any of your books? Oh yeah, I have pretty much a full run of Battle, which was a British weekly anthology. I must have about 50 or 100 issues of Commando which were the smaller 60-page digest single-story comics. I do have a good many of these, and also I'm happy to say that quite a lot of this material has been collected. Um, Rebellion, the owners of 2000 AD and Judge Dredd, now own Battle, and they're putting a lot of the classics back in print, like Charlie's War, Death Squad. There's also been a, a decent effort by the previous copyright holders, Titan Books, and they managed to get to reprint quite a lot of Johnny Red, uh, also Darkies Mob, HMS Nightshade. Uh, much of this stuff is, I believe, still in print, which is great because otherwise it would be disappearing without trace. They are otherwise hard to find. You've actually, yeah. I believe, selected some of your favorites and collected them into one volume of Battle Classics. Yeah, there was a couple of those. I was lucky enough to work with Titan Books to do that. The strips I chose were HMS Nightshade by John Wagner and Mike Western. That's one about a British warship protecting convoys uh, in the Battle of the Atlantic and also the Murmansk run to Russia. There's The General Dies at Dawn, which uh, is a, a very good uh, sort of saga of World War II featuring a German officer by uh, Alan Hebden and John Cooper. There's Fighting Man, which is uh, quite unusual for a British comic. is set during the Vietnam War, which was my first introduction to that particular conflict, actually made quite an impression on me because I've written quite a bit about Vietnam since. Uh, that's by Alan Hebden and Cam Kennedy. It was great to be able to do that, actually. When these books came out a couple of years ago, I think all those stories had been out of print uh, since, gosh, 
sort of 79 to 81, something like that. So getting them back into print, yes, it was a nice thing to be able to do. Is there a particular weapon of war, tanks or the airplanes or the battleships that fascinates you the most? It's probably fighter aircraft, to be honest. There is something about that, about um, a single man or maybe two men uh, in a single aircraft having to pit against the foe. I would like to make clear, by the way, I don't see what we're talking about here as some sort of knightly duel chivalry and so on. That is the way that it was often sold to the public in World War One and Two, but it was not like that at all. It was far more brutal. And yet the experience of the fighter pilots that I've read about and the design of the aircraft, I would say those things do have a particular lock on my imagination. Um, I, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, I have plenty more war stories I want to tell and I have quite a lot of material I'd like to write about the fighter pilots of World War II. Are there any classic historical books that you would recommend to people that want to know more about the battles and the fighters? There is one book I tend to recommend that is a good way to get a flavor of the conflict that I write about without necessarily going into too much technical or strategic or political detail. It's by a British journalist turned historian called Max Hastings. The book, well, it's actually published under two different titles. In the US, it's Inferno. In the UK, it's All Hell Let Loose. It's a history of World War II through the experience of the participants. Now, I'd hesitate to call it a social history. I wouldn't go that far. But it tries to examine the lot of as many different participants in World War II as possible from, say, an American general to a Leningrad housewife, from a Japanese submarine captain to an Italian tank gunner, civilian soldiers, airmen, sailors from all over the world, many different aspects of the conflict. And that book, more than any other, I think is a great primer. It's a great way of understanding the experience of as many different participants in the war as possible. You truly do come to understand that as a global war, in reading that book. And I would say you don't have to begin the book with a great deal of technical or historical knowledge. You can really just dive in. It is, as I say, a book ultimately about experience, and that's its great strength. In my stories, I try to emphasize character, and that's how I move the stories along. Yeah, that's a lesson I learned very early on. Character, of course, is formed by experience in just the same way that I use people to move my stories along. Uh, So in this book, you'll see the memories and experiences of people as forming the picture that the book paints of a global war. Turning back to your book, The Tankies, you worked on many books with Spanish artist Carlos Escuera, who died in 2018. He was the artist and co-creator of Judge Dredd. That's right. And he was recruited to do art for Battle Pictures Weekly also. Was that your first experience in seeing his work? Yes, that would have been... My first experience of Carlos' work, um, I picked up 2000 AD when I was seven. And he did some work for the very earliest issues on Judge Dredd. And then he disappeared from the comic for about a year. And then he came back into it with another character he created called Strontium Dog, a sort of space bounty hunter. And around about then, I was also picking up Battle, and Arla created a couple of pretty famous characters for that. Rat Pack, a kind of commando team, and Major Easy, who was the story of a sort of cigar-smoking, sniper-rifle-carrying loner. 
um, one of these sort of mysterious special forces guys who comes and goes from the battlefront as he pleases. So Carlos' style was something I got used to very, very early on. There's no one else ever drew quite like Carlos did. No one else had quite that sense of character. It was a real pleasure, of course, when I got into comics myself, into writing comics, to be able to to get to know the guy and to find myself working with him on a great many stories. And best of all, I think, were the war stories we did together. It was a real treat to have him drawing those books. Uh, I miss him to this day. I mean, wonderful guy, incredibly decent, modest guy, uh, and also an artistic genius. Uh, as far as comics are concerned, there were very few better. Based on your experience working with him, what kind of person was he? Do you have any particular stories that you remember that are special and important to you? I worked with Carlos for, gosh, about 25 years. We did a lot of material together. And yet in that time, I probably only met him, gosh, three or four times. I lived in the UK and then moved to the US. And Carlos lived in Spain throughout that entire period. Uh, I do remember him as being tremendously good company. As I say, very modest guy, also a very funny guy. And to see someone like that, you know, someone so self-effacing, I realized that here's the man who almost single-handedly reinvigorated British comics with Judge Dredd, with Strontium Dog, uh, with so many stories for battle, whose style was... It's really a vital part of that particular part of the history of British comics. Yeah, he was something of a titan, actually, for all the fact he just came across as a friendly little bloke from Spain. And he did a lot of the research on the look of the weapons used, the vehicles used, the, yeah. the uniforms. So he did a lot of that to help bring this to life. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in just the same way that the military history I've been reading my whole life forms the research for the stories to the extent that I quite often don't need to do too much research because the stuff's already in my head. Perhaps occasionally a few technical details just to fine-tune things. I think Carlos probably had the same experience. He finished working for Battle, I suppose, in the early 80s. And from then on, it was mostly science fiction with 2000 AD. So about 20, 25 years after he stops working for Battle, he starts doing war comics with me. Perhaps about 20 years is better. So I suppose... All the knowledge and research and reference that he had, he'd sort of mentally accumulated back in the days of working for battle, nascent for so long, now came back to life and he was able to sort of click back into the old way of working. There was very, very little he got wrong. I mean, he got all sorts of um, important little details absolutely right. And I must say it's also very important because we've touched on the the human element to this, the characters and the human experience. It's also very important when you're doing these war stories, particularly one set in a tank, to have an artist with a great sense of character design. Uh, after all, in a tank story in particular, you're talking about four or five guys, probably all white, all wearing the same uniform and equipment glimpsed at their stations in the gloomy interior of a tank. Now, what you're going to need there is an artist who is extremely good at making his characters individuals so that you can tell them apart mm -hmm. at a glance. Uh, there are not many people who could do that the way he could. That's a very good point. I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I didn't have any problem distinguishing who the characters were. Yeah, you always know. I mean, Styles himself, he is in the finest tradition of Carlos Escara's artwork. 
Styles has a touch of the grotesque about him. Mm-hmm. He's this knobbly faced, bad tempered little bastard, always scowling. But so he's an easy one. But even beyond him, the rest of the crew, and uh, I think in the three stories, Styles actually commands a different crew in each one. Mm-hmm. So you're probably talking about 12 or 15 people altogether, and yet Carlos makes them all individual. You can tell each man from his opposite number in the tank crew uh, instantly, no trouble at all. And although this isn't stated explicitly in the book's credits, I noticed that Hector Escarera, Carlos's son, inked the tankies. That's right. The two of them were working together, I think, for about the last 10, maybe 12 years of Carlos' career. Certainly, they formed an excellent partnership. And obviously, that kind of creativity is in the blood because Hector did a wonderful job. It's a great book. And for those who aren't familiar with all the technical details of battle and tanks the afterword makes for some really good reading and it is a meaty afterword and it's also personal stories told from the perspective of the soldiers so it's the characters that really get you interested in what happens to them i hope so And now I'd just like to ask you the final nine questions I ask my guests to learn more about you as a person. Uh, Garth, for recreation, what do you like to do? I like to read. I like to watch TV, not as much as I used to. Uh, I've done a surprising amount of reading over the past year and a half while everyone else has been watching TV, it feels like. I like the great outdoors. I like hiking. I like eating. And frankly, I like drinking to go along with it. Do you have a favorite birthday of yours, and why was it your favorite? Um, bum, bum. You know, they've all been pretty good. Uh, no complaints. I might single out would be my 40th and my 50th, just because I spent them with good friends. And they were both spent in San Francisco, which uh, after New York is my other favorite American city. Now, when you think back to middle school years, teenage years, what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? Oh, boy. Uh, God, that's a good question. You know, I don't really remember. I think I had some comic stuff. You know, I might have even entertained the idea at the time that I could draw, and I might have had a couple of my own efforts on the wall. Um, I can tell you that I was sadly mistaken. Steve Dillon once told me that you have the ability to reduce three dimensions to two or you don't, and I very, very definitely don't. If you were stuck on a deserted island and you could take a book or a set of books that are related, it could be a novel, a graphic novel, a comic book, what would you take with you to read for pleasure? Oh boy, that's a tough one. You know, I might actually take the novels of Derek Robinson, who's the uh, chap I mentioned earlier. His books are of a kind I find endlessly entertaining, the kind you can just pick up, find a favorite scene, and thoroughly enjoy. Um, He wrote novels like Piece of Cake, Goshawk Squadron, Hornet's Sting, A Splendid Little War. He writes about aviation in the First and Second World Wars. The best description I can give you is if you imagine... Joseph Heller by way of Evelyn Waugh. 
I think you might get close to Derek Robinson. He really is one of the best kept secrets. Actually, he is a tremendous writer and endlessly entertaining for my desert island. Now, you said you like a good drink. What is your beverage of choice? Mostly Guinness. I like IPAs and things, although not that hazy stuff. I have no idea why that took off. But for a night on the beer, I tend to like Guinness just because it isn't fizzy. Mm-hmm. And I find it easier to put away in quantity. Otherwise, I'm very fond of wine, mostly red, also port. And my particular tipple for the end of the evening tends to be bourbon. I was just lucky to get my hands on a bottle of 12-year-old Van Winkle. Do you have a guilty pleasure of yours? Guilty pleasure? (laughs) I don't feel terribly guilty about most of the things that I do, maybe it's actually that a 12-year-old party I'm going to go, I fully intend to drink by myself. I should probably feel guilty about that. Is there a technology that is obsolete that you wish people still used or used more frequently than they did in its heyday? Something that you still think is useful that is considered obsolete passe? God, exactly the kind of thing I would never think about. Um... I don't know. When I'm at my most self-righteous, I might suggest that people try to do without current technologies Mm. like phones, the internet, and so on. Sorry, when I say phones, I mean their iPhones and so on. I don't mean the phone, uh, using it as a phone, um, just to see if they can. But again, as I say, that is me at my most self-righteous, and I have no intention of practicing what I preach in that regard at all. I mean, let's face it, they make life extraordinarily easy, don't they? They can, and also make it difficult at times when you can't unplug. Was there in your career or life a missed opportunity? A missed opportunity? Gosh. Um, You know, there may have been a couple of times where, this may surprise people, where I had an opportunity to meet perhaps a World War II veteran. I can think of a couple of instances where I had a shot meeting a particular person and I thought, I'll get him next time, which over the past 20 years, as as a lot of these guys reach their 80s, 90s and so on, uh, was an extraordinarily stupid thing uh, for me to think. And what I regret deeply, I'm very happy to say that um, over the last 10 years or so, I've jumped with any such opportunity that I can get. I was very lucky a couple of years ago to um, one of the Tuskegee Air, Dr. Roscoe Brown, captain. He was 94 when I met him. You know, like most men in their mid-90s, he couldn't tell you much about what he'd done over the past week. But he certainly remembered shooting down a Nazi fighter over Berlin in 1945. It was a real treat to meet him and to talk to him. So I'm glad I grabbed that opportunity. And my final question, when did you take a risk? It could be in your personal life. It could be in your professional life. When did you take a risk? When did I take a risk? I mean, I've done the things that I suppose you could say are risky looking in from the outside, but actually doing them I realized that every safety precaution that could have been taken had been taken. So I'd never felt like I was taking my life in my hands. For instance, I flew in World War II fighters and World War II bombers. These are aircraft that are 70 or 80 years old, and I suppose the potential for something to go wrong would have been quite high. But on the other hand, they are lovingly maintained with more care put into them than the average airliner. So Maybe that's not much of a risk. Another example, when I was in Australia, 
I got in a cage to swim, not with, but near great white sharks. Now, I suppose that's pretty risky, but once you're there in the water looking out at the sharks, you realize that they have no interest in you whatsoever. They're not going to attack the cage unless they're provoked and I have no intention of doing so. And you get to simply enjoy seeing the environment. So again, unless I did something really, really stupid, there wasn't much of a risk involved. You might say I'm into enjoying experiences that could be risky if you were stupid. I just don't intend to be stupid. Have you ever uh, done skydiving? Yeah, I did. Actually. I did do that. Let's see. I was just outside Portland, Oregon about 20 years ago with Matt Hollingsworth, the initial colorist on Preacher. He thought it would be a good idea for us to jump out of a perfectly good aeroplane. And we did. And I must say, it was absolutely exhilarating, um, absolutely tremendous. You know, the, probably the single most exciting 30 seconds of my life was um, the free fall I enjoyed after exiting. Would you do it again? Yeah, I probably would. I mean, it's been 20 years. I can remember indescribable terror. As I went out the door, a microsecond later, replaced by unimaginable exhilaration and sheer joy, a massive adrenaline rush, I suppose. That was odd, actually. I've never quite had an emotional 180 like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, highly enjoyable, and I would do it again. Well, that's The Tankies by Garth Ennis. Garth, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, folks, coming up in two weeks, Ibrahim Mustafa on his sci-fi graphic novel, Count, which is based upon the classic by Alexander Dumas, The Count of Monte Cristo. We are going to talk about the graphic novel and the publisher, Humanoids, about Ibrahim's day job, and the final line questions I ask all my guests. This book, Count, is an evergreen book. As such, the promotion is handled differently, and Ibrahim and I talk about that. After that interview, I have one coming up with a comic book creating couple. No, not that one. The other one. Well, I'll tell you later. Once it's in the can, I will reveal who my guests will be. Those of you who listen know how to find out. First, you subscribe. It's free. Use your favorite podcast catcher. If you use Apple Podcast, please rate and review the show. If you haven't done it yet, put it off no longer. And if you have, tell a friend. To learn more about who's coming up and about my favorite comics from the Silver Age, Bronze Age, and Copper Age, you can follow me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. I really do appreciate those of you sharing your favorite comic books from those eras. And if you want to reach me directly, don't do what others do on Twitter with no followers who are trying to sell something and say, Hey, Creator Talks, what's your email address? You find out by listening to the show. And that is the only way to get it. Until such time as we're at cons again, we can meet in person, and I can give you a business card. My email address is creatortalks at gmail.com, creatortalks at gmail.com. That's the best way to reach me. I'm happy to communicate through social media sharing things, but, you know, we're limited to 240 characters, and some topics deserve more explanation, and you need more space to write. So email is the best way to reach me about those things. And, hey... If you write a review or you send me an email, I'll read it on the show. Your opinion matters to me. I'd like to know what you think about the show and the comic books that you like and recommend. Well, my multi-time zone clocks on the wall say it's time for me to go. So, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast. I know you have a lot of choices. 
For Creator Talks, I have been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time. <laughs>